Welcome to Network Capital, Stefan. It is such a pleasure to be hosting you uh, to learn a bit more about your career and your new book, which has uh, talked about a wide range of countries and mental models, um, gambling on development. So tell us a bit about uh, yourself and uh, how did you forge your career, think about your career as an academic, as a policymaker, as an advisor to governments? Talk to us a bit about that. Yes, no, absolutely. So look, I'm, I'm one of these people who um, probably stumbled in an academic career. Um, if I go back a bit more than 30 years, you know, doing my research, I, I wanted to work on development and, you know, development and the economics of development is, of course, has to be applied. You know, it happens in countries, it happens in places. So there was this, uh, urge for me to actually be involved in what's happening in places and in countries. So after I did my PhD, when I was ended up, I had worked on Tanzania, I ended up, my very first job was being based in Ethiopia, teaching at the university. Mm -hmm. So I was teaching there in the university and those who know a bit of the history of Ethiopia, it's like this, this was 1992, that meant less than 12 months after the fall of a previous regime that had been very brutal, which the country had been totally on its knees and so on. So, and so spending a lot of time there, you know, you, you want to not just do your academic research and you, you want to be practical and useful. But one of the rules of academic careers is really, you need to convince your peers that you are serious. And so I spent <laughs> a lot of time of course, doing what you do, which is learning and, and studying and doing what researchers do, which is trying to answer very small questions really carefully. But I always had the urge to be involved much more on the policy side as well. And so fast forward 20 years, uh, around 2011, I got the opportunity to, to, you know, occasionally having done a little bit of advisory work, but as an academic, you know, they don't take you seriously, really, but I had a chance to actually go inside a government system. And, and this was at DFID, the Development Department for International Development, so the Development Agency of the UK, to become its chief economist, which is, you know, if you think of it, for any civil service in the world, it's quite something to make your most senior technocrats suddenly an outsider. In my case, it was even more so because, you know, I am not born British. I was Belgian, and still am a Belgian passport holder. Uh, to be put in the UK government system as the senior technocrat was quite something. So they clearly yeah, took a risk on me, they gambled on me. But clearly, you know, I enjoyed it. And I think they kind of enjoyed it. And what should have been two years of secondment ended up more than seven years as their chief economist. And then since then, I've been advisor to three cabinet ministers that have a portfolio of development, including the last two foreign secretaries that, that worked on development. And so I'm kind of intertwined in the policy space. And, and you know, making, making the link down with the book is that I felt the urge as an academic with arguably maybe a bit of credibility as an academic, but to actually trying to also reflect my experiences more involved in the policy side. So not writing just a dry academic book, but something that 
makes sense for those people who are practitioners that work in governments in, in different countries. So, so that was a bit like what I wanted to write, whether I succeeded, like let other, others judge, but to write a book that is academically sufficiently grounded, but that actually tells a story that more people can relate to that work and that are interested in, in the space of development uh, across the world. Why is beer and pizza important to development? <laughs> yeah, so, um, well, thanks for making that illusion. And it's, it's something, it's, it's, it has actually a lot in the book. Uh, these sentences were initially put in back to the office reports when I was working at DFID back to the office to basically headquarters and saying, you know, and I remember it was a, a line of a, of a section in a, in a little paper I wrote, and, you know, don't forget that beer and pizza are really centrally important. And what I meant by it is, you know, when, when we work in a lot of these countries, as, and this is in the case of now an outside agency, but it's, it could be the same as a civil servant inside a country working around development or an academic that gives advice in the country to their own government. We during our advice is all technocratic and it's all giving us the things that, you know, within our skill set that we know better. So I would give advice around how to manage the economy and, you know, what kind of industrial policy makes sense, what are sensible economic policies, what are not, what is a sensible program or not, how to target the poor and how not to target them and so on. So you give these technical bits of advice. And then the standard thing that happens then over dinner at night, and I called it beer and pizza, when especially the outsiders, you know, the, the, the foreigners, the World Bank people, the IMF people, the DFID people, the others, often mixing with, you know, the, those that have been educated abroad in the countries, and you, you go for a dinner afterwards, you know, and maybe beer and pizza or whatever you have. And then the only thing you talk about is, is always about the politics of the country and why right. something nothing why nothing happens or why something doesn't happen and why policies are done and say oh you should realize that that actually the reason why that policy is taking place because there is this one firm that has given so much money to the party that's now in power that really would be hurt with it or there is this one particular person who is actually probably quite corrupt uh, and actually gets big checks from, from, from licenses on this and that. And so you start uncovering that the underlying politics and the way politics economics are intertwined is actually fundamentally often what constrains you in terms of doing sensible policies. And so the point is really our well-meaning technical advice, whether it's a new silver bullet or a new seed or a new agricultural policy or whatever it is, actually, if we don't understand how it fits into the relationships of those with power in the country, big businesses, politicians, civil servants, maybe the military, if you don't think about that, you're never going to get it done. Or you get maybe even, even worse outcomes because somehow it gets turned around to the disadvantage of the people you want to support and, and not. So that's why it is important. We shouldn't just, not just over dinner, over beer and, and pizza talk about these things, but we should be part of our day job to think about, you know, why are things happening as they are in our places? And we can't hide behind technocratic expertise and small perf perfection uh, advice. We need to understand what we're dealing with. How true, uh, Stefan. Could you tell me a bit about uh, the early days of writing your book? 
what prompted you to approach the subject of gambling on development and uh, how did that pan out? Right. So um, I was actually just today talking to my uh, boss, my dean at my at the school of, of the Platonic School of Government. And I said, you know, I'm really pleased I finished my book now. It's out. It seems to be well received. And she said, you know, I said, remember last year with my annual review, because it was actually a bit like the annual review, a meeting we do every year to check a bit what we're doing, how it's all going. And I said, look, I'm actually very pleased I finished it now. And I remember last year and the year before, I kept on saying I want to finish this. I said, no, you've been talking about it for six years. I can prove it. I can prove it in your annual reviews you've been trying to say it. And it's an interesting thing by saying six years, because six years ago, I was kind of ready to start to leave Differed as a chief economist. And a lot of my colleagues had encouraged me to actually say, well, you should put these back to the office reports out. And in fact, some of the middle chapters are really the back to the office reports, rewritten now, of course. And so I had this material, this experience, because what are these middle chapters for those who haven't seen the book? And of course, everybody should read it. These are country case studies. And these are all places I spent quite a lot of time. It's actually in the end about 30 countries during my period working in government that I really ended up spending time. And this is not just like going and sit in the Sheraton and talk to a few people. You know, it's like I had at some point five, six weeks in China, in Beijing. I moved my office there and I spent every day talking to government officials or traveling to the countryside and trying to understand what did they do and is this relevant for Africa, for other poorer countries. Right. So we spent that time and do that in endless countries. So there was something there that I had been trying to reflect what, why is it that the things we want to do in these countries are succeeding or not succeeding in these different places across so many places? So then, you know, it takes time because somehow you need to distance yourself from this to be able to write it. So the process of writing was then stepping back a bit and actually thinking, okay, overall, what are the common elements here? What's in common here? What's, what's the thing? And then, you know, lockdown, we, all of us had different experiences. Actually, my experience was when, during COVID to actually finding the peace and quiet and not being too distracted for a bit and actually saying, well, look, I have to be inside my house and, and let me actually focus on this. And then the process was, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting, anyone ever wants to write a book, you know, you have to be so self-critical. I think I wrote six versions of this book and it's still bits and pieces that I feel like mm, I wish I'd done it differently. But that's not bad because communicating is different from thinking. Academic writing is so different from trying to communicate with a, with a, with a broader group. So, so you have to do this and uh, yeah, but it's, um, I enjoyed it and it's, but it is, the reflection of a of a slow process, then at some point quite intensively written up in the last uh, twelve months until last summer. Congrats on completing it. Uh, so clearly, you had a productive pandemic. Uh, tell me about uh, the main thesis. Why did you call the book uh, "Gambling on Development"? Okay, so so in a in a quite a simple way. You know, we all have ways and mental models, ways of reflecting on, on what the world looks like. And of course, the world is very complex. But the more I started thinking about um, development and growth, I was attracted by a fairly simple framework, which is essentially comes out of political science and where they would consider a state 
probably well described, not as simply something that has a leader or a particular constitution or something, mm -hmm. but, but actually there is a group of people with power and influence, the elite, as I call it, but not in a normative sense, just more in a descriptive sense. There's a, a group of people with power of influence in a society. And any kind of society that, call it functions, that is kind of stable and somewhat more or less peaceful, there is somehow an elite bargain taking place. A deal between these different people in across the elite, and who are they then? These are people in, of course, in politics, but also in, big, in the business community, in the military, senior civil servants, possibly in civil society, public intellectuals, journalists, you know, a broad group who actually are really influential to shape at any moment in time the direction. Okay, A stable country that has somehow or another some form of deal. Not everybody is included, of course, but it is somehow there is something happening. So what's the main thesis of the book? Is that if we observe growth and development, it is not simply by because they have a particular well-defined set of policies that I can identify. No, if I look at successful countries in growth and development, they did lots of different things, sometimes more by the state, sometimes more with the market. Sometimes it went faster, sometimes it went slower. Uh, they, they focused more on certain sectors than in other sectors and so on. And I don't believe it's just, there's actually quite a broad set of policies that actually can achieve quite a lot of progress. But what these countries that have been reasonably successful have in common is that the underlying elite bargain is actually one in which growth and development is a real central aspect. So if I go to China after 1979, I would say, well, the development bargain was there and it came there because, you know, why it was there? Well, the country was really in crisis, ideology was dominating, but, but it was really struggling with legitimacy and actually any form of progress, well, they kind of somehow said, look, we're going to seek legitimacy now through growth and development. We're going to be very more pragmatic and less ideological, and growth and development is somehow what unifies a big part of the elite in the party there at the time. Not everybody initially was following this, but it became the dominant thing. If you go to Bangladesh, a totally different country, that actually in the last 20, 30 years has done remarkably well from a basket case that as Henry Kissinger described it, or at least one of his aides did in, uh, in, in the late 1970s, to actually where you know, growth has been quite substantial, where um, the state was not taking the lead, but actually ended up doing reasonably sensible things and let space for sectors to emerge. Of course, the best known is the RMG sector, which was not because of some planned development, but actually maybe a little bit of coincidence and certain things happened. The state didn't stop them, and that's almost the most striking thing. It supported them a little bit, didn't stop them, and it actually started growing, and it has really fast growth rates. It's very export-oriented, um, and it has been remarkably stable in its economy for the last 20, 25 years. So, so, so that's very different. But it underlies again some kind of elite commitment that seemed to have emerged in the early 80s, not to just think that the state should do everything, but actually let space for other actors. And I need to mention in Bangladesh as well, NGOs. You know, BRAC is the largest NGO to world, in the world. You know, I keep on all the time wondering how did it be able to get so large? Why is it not happening in other countries? Well, 
I can't think of another country that would ever allow it to become as large and as powerful as it is. And so that actually suggests there's somehow an elite co commitment that, you know, look, we need to do one way or another, get in a pragmatic way, growth and development, and we allow that space. So that underlying shared commitment for growth and development, it sounds very simple, but it's for me the precondition for growth and development and turn it a bit around. If we look at states that don't make much progress, and I can go to, I can go to Pakistan, I can go to Nigeria, to the DRC, I would actually say, well, I don't observe there what I call a development bargain, an elite, uh, underlying elite commitment that growth and development is central in the objective function for those who have power and influence in that country. There's other objectives more important. If I go to Nigeria, it's just distributing the oil rents and not caring about much else. If I go to the Democratic Republic of Congo, it's having enough connections with uh, some mining companies, some, some of them quite dodgy, so that actually there's enough money in, in my tax havens and my illicit money flowing there and my family can be rich. And that's the focus all the way to almost kleptocratic thing. Or I go to places like um, Malawi, where, um, you know, it's not predatory, the state, but somehow can't be bothered to do too much. And the political deal is not making much progress. So the underlying thesis, you know, without that shared commitment, you're not going to get growth and development. That is very helpful uh, to understand, uh, Stefan. Uh, can you talk to me a bit more about uh, why elites collaborate in certain contexts? contexts are they is this real collaboration and where does it differ from the emergence of what people call crony capitalism yes so okay so so the the first uh, part of that of that question you know how does it emerge so what we shouldn't imagine is that they suddenly go sit all around the table and they sign an agreement and everything is done you know that's not how it's done it's it's often um, more to do with um, an emerging recognition that the way things are going, they just can't continue. For example, that maybe the population wouldn't take it anymore. I'm tempted to say 1979 in China, there was a real quest for legitimacy. You know? They had delivered very little in the last in the last 15 years in that period. And actually, they needed somehow or another to actually to almost for survival of the regime to actually find legitimacy and legitimacy was part was done through growth and development. It's very striking that in some other places it comes out of uh, conflict and whether it's because of pressure from below that you need to have some kind of dividend or even amongst each other some recognition that actually um, we need to deliver something more. And I'm thinking, say, of Bangladesh, but I'm also thinking of Rwanda coming out of the genocide. And you're getting somehow really a regime in power in Rwanda. Uh, as, as you know, so uh, President Kagame came from essentially representing, yes, the, the, the most important and by far the most important, and some would argue the single uh, victim of the entire trouble there, and definitely the ones victims of the genocide. But also he represented that small group, 
what is the legitimacy to the broader population. So he needs somehow build up his legitimacy to doing growth and development. So, so there's something there that, that may emerge. At the same time, it could be, and we've seen that in some countries, an elite also realizing, you know, if we just keep on the status quo, we're just distributing whatever there is for now, and it actually is not that much. So if you start growing the economy, we actually, uh, and we'll do development, we may be able to have, um, as they say in English, have the cake and eat it. We can both stay in power and meanwhile get richer as well, but actually also develop, deliver growth and development. And so, and I don't mean this in a cynical way, but it actually creates the space that actually, you know, you could have, uh, for lack of a better word, a win-win. The elite can still win because it actually can keep on uh, getting better off and it can sustain its position. Um, for example, we've seen that in countries that actually have used their natural resources reasonably well. I'm thinking of Malaysia, I'm thinking of Indonesia. They've used them and they've distributed amongst the elite, more, more, no doubt, but also invested them so that actually when these resources become small relative to GDP, there's other growth engines and, and they have opportunities as well. So, so there is something there that it actually is in their self-interest to actually move to it. Although um, it's important to recognize that it's still a surprise that they do it. You know, there's a surprise that in Indonesia in the 1970s, it evolved like that because the status quo is very attractive because you know what it is. And that's why it make, gets it so hard at times, especially if you're a bit of natural resources, you're taking a gamble, you're taking a bit of a risk. And this is why the title of the book is there. You actually gamble on development because God knows what Pandora's box you're going to open up when dynamic forces emerge mm. or in your economy and society. And history is full of these accidents of history where leading groups lose power because actually there's change. And somehow or another, not getting change is a safer position. So status quo is somehow attractive as well. So you get at that. It's an interesting point that you said, can we avoid getting crony capitalism? Now that's, a, that's actually a, a, a very profound an important question because I should clarify a little bit because I'm not I'm not in the in, in from the kind of school that says the first thing we need to do in development or to get growth and development is to get the institutions perfect you know you get the right. rule of law very much total transparency no more corruption and we should just fight that because once we have that sorted everything else can follow I'm realistic enough to actually see not easily a path towards that, okay? I don't see a path towards that. And at the same time, I'm also seeing quite a lot of countries who start actually doing quite well, the first stages of development. I'm thinking of China or thinking of Bangladesh, but also some of the African countries that I name in the book. You know, they don't do this with perfect institutions. They do that actually with pretty weak institutions and there is corruption and so on. So you can understand that somehow to keep that balance in the elite going, that actually, call it the kind of, um, you know, whoever is in charge and whoever is the, the leader, clearly that wants to keep the coalition of power together, that actually wants to develop, probably needs to give in to certain things. Now, what's the difference here with crony capitalism? Is that in crony capitalism, the elite bargain is fundamentally is to serve the cronies. And yeah. they get richer, and then you get the oligarchs and you get a small number of families that only get richer and richer, but there is, there is nothing, there's not even trickle down. And I would actually argue that 
that no, that's that's one of these elite bargains that I'm not favoring. It actually has to be deliberate to say it has to be to some extent inclusive. It has to be gross. It doesn't have to be perfect egalitarian. We're not going to get that. I'm again realistic enough that no elite will simply give away that power and do this. But it can't just be that the cronies get richer. You know, I recognize that there are in most countries, business families that will be very hard to dislodge and simply saying to get growth and development, we need to somehow dislodge them first. Not sure it's helping either because they are sitting on the capital and they need to invest and they need to invest in better things. I find it interesting in Bangladesh is that, you know, the RMG families are now well, very rich and they are powerful players in politics. I rather have them, as I see some of them doing, investing in an attempt to build up new industries than simply say, oh, I'm now going to go after all your capital, as if that's a solution in itself. You know, you're not doing it. So, so crony, but, but if it was purely crony capitalism, you know, as we would see, that seems to be the Russian model these days, that we all talk about a small number of oligarchs, you know, let's not forget GDP per capita in Russia, despite all its natural resources, has essentially been uh, flat for, 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 for more than a decade. And don't know exactly the number, but definitely for a country, you know, in a period where a lot of emerging economies were growing fast, it was doing really badly. That's clearly not a development bargain. That is crony capitalism. That is actually an elite bargain where a small group of people can get rich and accumulate to keep an elite in power, but actually with very little change uh, happening. So, yeah, I don't mind that there's a couple of cronies here and there, <laughs> and I don't think we are helped by just focusing on getting rid of them. But that's not the same as crony capitalism, because that actually is one of these elite bargains that is not helping us. Got it. Thank you. Um, so the Robin Hood model, where I take it from the rich, is probably not implementable or wise. No, that, that, uh, yes, and, and I, I'm very concerned about it. Look, if we, if we go back in, in history, not recent history, you know, it's, it's just over 10 years now since the Arab Spring started, okay? It's, uh, it's actually why Nations Fail came out during the Arab Spring, and my God, they had sales because everybody said, oh, this is the turning point, suddenly they're going mm. to get all rid of all the cronies there in all this, think of the North African countries especially, they were going to get rid of everything, everything will change, you know, I mean, look, there's still something in me that <laughs> is enough interested in, in, in dramatic change. And I can, can't help that I get excited when I see people on the streets in Sri Lanka and so on. And I'm saying, look, this is something there. But, you know, most of these moments, many of these moments, not most necessarily, I can't quantify, but many of these moments got we get wasted. You know, this moment of suddenly saying we're going to just turn it all around. And, and that's because it is actually quite tricky. You know, the, 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 the cheered periods of rapid change are, are, are risky periods. And I'm, I want change, but you know, maybe I'm a little bit more cautious in, in my older age now than I would have been much earlier. And the Robin Hood model, it's not entirely clear what you're actually doing. And to actually in a very, simple sense. Take, take Nigeria, you could say that at the moment, the whole model is based on maybe 100,000 people, a couple of thousand families and extended families controlling all the oil rents one way or another. So arguably, 
And political scientists call this distributive politics. It's based around distributive politics. You know, and basically the state's function is to distribute amongst those people who are connected to the state. Now, Robin Hood politics is a form of distributive politics at a much larger scale. You know, it's not clear that that's, that's a model in itself. Now, having said that, um, you know, I'm all for proper taxation and, you know, wealth taxation and all kinds of things and sensible things that, that you want to do. And, and redistribution is part of, 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 of sensible developmental policies. But the idea of kind of the change will happen because we steal from the rich to give to the poor or we expropriate from the rich to give to the poor, it's a tricky one because we don't have a way of switching on and off the light, like quickly switching off the light, redistribute and switching on the light again. The process of that change is can be hugely disruptive. So kind of want to avoid the unintended consequence. And that's my analogy with Arab Spring. The unintended consequence of that, where we suddenly thought this is a moment to get rid of some real corrupt rent-seeking leaders, led to huge instability in some places, war, and in other places, just a new bunch of them taking power. And actually, are we really better off compared to 10 years ago? It's a hard question. And that's, that's mm. what I mean that I worry about a bit. Could you connect the dots between institutions, um, Lebanon, India, and Bangladesh? So it's an open question. I'd let you answer it the way you want. Lebanon, India, and Bangladesh, you asked, isn't it? Yeah. And institutions. And institutions, yeah. So, so one, one of the interesting things there, I, I will briefly talk first about, about, um, about the, the fundamental underlying principle of, of an elite bargain to start with. And I would argue that all these three countries, they have an underlying elite bargain for broadly speaking, peace and stability. Okay, and that's interesting on Lebanon that we go back to it, but when the conflict ended a couple of decades ago, um, it's remarkable given all the stuff that's happened in Lebanon <laughs> since Israeli invasions, Hezbollah, all kinds of things. You know, this is pretty serious stuff, the Syrian war and whatever. Until very recently, it remained quite stable. Now, I'm not saying that it ever has an elite bargain for growth and development. No, it definitely didn't. But it had an underlying elite bargain for peace and stability. That's for me the minimum condition for actually almost talk, be able to talk about a state and let alone to actually having something more. And of course, Lebanon is the fundamental, fundamental disappointment that the only thing that elite, that, that, that elite bargain does has or has been doing is peace and stability. And of course, the basis of it was those who follow Lebanon a little bit is, and I write a little bit in the book about it, is having a really smart governor of the central bank. It's the only country that specifies the religion of its central bank governor by the, in the constitution. And uh, this man uh, is actually turned out to be very smart because he started essentially a Ponzi scheme. Why Ponzi scheme? Basically, he kept on offering bonds with very high return in uh, that was very attractive for the Lebanese community overseas, which is massive, very much involved in business, some of them really, really wealthy. And actually government bonds were issued and they were happily signing up to them with basically with a convertible currency guaranteed, uh, very high rates of returns. 
And so, and why could they, and basically that would pay for essentially the peace in the country. And how was the peace paid for? By paying off every group that had been involved in any of the conflicts. Uh, mm-hmm. And so if you go to Beirut, you say, my God, is this a city that ever had a civil war? This is like one of the smartest cities in the world that you could visit in the, in the harbor uh, with, the, with the yachts. It's just amazing, of course. Let's not ask where some of the capital came from for some of these yachts, but, you know, and it's not very illicit trade necessarily in some kinds of other stuff, but it's there. So a lot of money flows in, capital flowing in there, uh, high rates of return, but basically the only way they could repay it is by borrowing more because this is fundamentally a state that is not producing anything and the the country wasn't really producing anything. So anyway, that that says it's a Ponzi scheme because you be, be, you borrow to to pay back past borrowing and you keep on paying more and of course it ran out of steam more in recent times and uh, that's why it is but it's still interesting that they get some basic peace and stability now first move then to what is it so it has a very weak institutions but actually it seems to have got in a surprising sort of way for such a underlying unstable setting quite remarkable stability, okay? So it's it's relative, right? It's all relative, but it's such an unstable thing. And so and there's something smart that's happened. So it, I find Lebanon fascinating and the constitutional deal is fascinating. And of course, it goes back to post-World War period, post-Second World War period, uh, that's constitutional deal and so on. And it's something there, but, but it's not development. This is not a basis, it's redistributive and it's not for development. So the institutions are set up fundamentally to be distributive and not for growth. And so it has very weak institutions for growth and it's uh, and all kinds of things. So contrast that with Bangladesh where actually it doesn't have that kind of uh, formalized setting that would guarantee that kind of stability in the system. But actually, informally, the rules of the games are reasonably well understood. And we should say in Bangladesh, we should be a bit worried these days, and people are worried about, even though, you know, okay, 15 years ago, people were saying, oh, there's too many transitions of power, and now people worry a bit about maybe there's not enough of them, but there is a certain extreme stability emerging, but definitely in the period of its fast growth, you know, something was working. There was somehow with all the dysfunctionality, the instability that we had in the politics and whatever, something was working. So the implicit contract between the elites was actually working quite well. In Lebanon, the implicit contract between the elite is like, I don't give a damn really about anyone else. I'm just giving a damn about my small group of people and that's it. While I have a formally, I have actually quite well-defined roles of and, 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 and how everything should work. So in the end, it doesn't work for growth and development, but the shared commitment, which is in a sense, you know, an, almost a bit of a set of norms and values that underlies the informality of the institutions in Bangladesh has worked quite well. And it has actually led to certain restraints and not doing stupid things. And, and that's actually the interesting thing. Now, you asked about India. India, of course, by its size, it's much more complicated. Um, but the, and um, its institutions are, you know, I mean, they arguably are quite, they are quite strong. You know, it's not, um, what I think was what held India back until the 1990s was an mm-hmm. obsession with, 
with ideas, with ideology. And the whole Neruvian deal, it was not because they had a terrible constitution or a terrible setup of the federal state or a terrible division of power. No, it, it was functioning up to a point. But I think there it was actually the ideas about what should we do with is actually relatively strong set of institutions. And what they do is actually a state that overreached itself. Uh, you know, the license Raj, as we often refer to, an economy where the state wanted to take too much of a role. And it had a bit to do with Neruvian economy, economics from, you know, it was from the zeitgeist of the time as well, from 1960s, 70s. And in India, it took a long time to unravel that. And it's actually only in the 90s that an understanding came as actually saying, well, we just shouldn't do everything. Actually, this could be a really dynamic state. And actually, these institu underlying institutions are relatively strong, you know, it's, with all its imperfections. We could actually be in a really fast-growing state and whatever. And so you got the reforms in the 90s. Um, not so much the fact that Manmohan Singh and the Prime Minister and Congress, at, or the Dal Coalition and so on, when, when, uh, that, uh, that they were all wanting to do it in the early 1990s, but the fact that I, I kind of say, well, by the late 1990s, even the BJP was talking about a kind of a politics of prosperity and everybody was buying into it, you know, a growing India is, is actually the one that we will want to talk to. So it's a very different India that was being talked to in the political narratives. And so it was an evolving narrative of, of ideas. Of course, India underperforms because, you know, its institutions are not, not that, um, how to say the, the it, it makes it difficult for itself, you know, in the way uh, the shared commitment is only there to up to a point. But I would say India has a development bargain, probably initially cultivated more in the southern states and spread. Not in every state it's as strong as it could be, you know, UP, that's not a development bargain in the politics, that's a very different thing. But some of the southern states and some of the western parts, you know. It, it, it's there and it's 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 there but the institutional starting point was stronger you know Bangladesh as a young state didn't have that and it had to come from that implicit contract and actually your question makes me now think I should actually think a bit more about it because that implicit understanding is so crucial it's not the letter of the law and the institution it's actually what you do with it and it comes back to a bit my personal critique at times with institutional economics or the why nations fail type of thesis that says get your institutions right and you'll develop is that and of course these institutions itself are shaped through history but you never get explained that a country with strong institutions suddenly starts doing it suddenly starts growing you know if if some of the why is it in in different european countries a bit later relative to other european countries why does it happen then and not before at some point or another the agency, the actions and behavior of the elite will matter. In India, it happened in the 1990s when there was a switch in the coalition of power and the understanding of the elite. In Bangladesh, it was probably in the 1980s. In Lebanon, they're definitely not there. The, the shared commitment is not there. That is, despite all the business acumen that the, the elite has there, it's definitely not about sharing the same commitment. Let's, let, let, let's grow Lebanon. Fascinating. Um, this has been enormously helpful to us, this institutional understanding and looking at countries of a different length. I want to turn our attention to China, but you've spent time there, you've written extensively about it. 
based on many metrics, China has accomplished uh, in the last three decades uh, a lot more than other countries. But you seem to suggest that China perhaps is not the example that uh, can be referenced by other countries. Uh, do you want to tell us why and uh, give us color into the Chinese model a bit? So, so it's interesting, you know, when you when when someone like me travels around the world and goes into different countries and at least in African countries, no, I meet always China as well. You know, Chinese are very active, of course, across the world with Belt and Road and so on, so on. And and at times, you know, you get the senses that they're selling selling a model, okay, and their model seems to be something to do with the state should lead. Um, you should spend a lot on infrastructure quickly and you know special economic zones are probably another part of it that you're doing now look at itself there's nothing wrong that in certain settings this this could be done so uh, however i don't think that's what we learn best from china hmm. and and in fact i don't think it's the most important thing that the china chinese experience teaches me and in fact you know a lot of what i write about in the book was inspired through my initially my stays in China and then also my recurring visits. I would go there until COVID and geopolitics decided differently about it. You know, a couple of times a year I would go and talk to officials and thinking or whatever and say, look, what you really can learn from China all over the world is that it is so crucial to putting your mind to growth and development, <laughs> that shared commitment of those who have power and influence. So it's not so much how they did it, but actually that they were so committed to doing it. And in the book also, right, that is the big lesson from China. Why did they end up growing so fast? Because they really, in the elite, wanted to do it. And they did mm -hmm. it at all costs. And the whole party was organized to deliver it. And they set it all up with clear targets for every level there and they had to achieve it and if you didn't do it you know you didn't achieve your targets and so on and there was a huge internal accountability in the party and it's not just about words but it's and not just beautiful development plans but real accountability if you got it or not you know you needed to prove yourself by delivering these things and as a result of course they had to do their governance reform in late sense in 1979 which is much more autonomy lower down or agency lower down because in Beijing you couldn't do that so you bring it down because only at the local level you can start delivering this because you know what's going on and you can correct it so and so in some sense how China did it was not through these three things I said earlier lots of infrastructure no actually not lots of infrastructure started after 2000s when they kept on going their development model then actually that was massive investment infrastructure, not in the early stages. Special economic zones, yes, they did it, but not as an economic investment. There was a governance reform. There was a zone there where Beijing delegated in the governance locally that you could actually really make it work in the way that wanted to do it. So you got a certain autonomy in the rules of the game you could do in a special economic zone. So you actually, that's what it was about. And, and, and in fact, Chinese colleagues always would tell me off, and I remember this vividly twice that it happened to me that I said the economic reforms in 1979 said, no, I'm sorry, they were not economic reforms, these were governance reforms, is the way we govern the economy, because the state still kept on being in charge, but it was decentralized and much lower. And so 
So what we learn is not so much this kind of what I in the book call the flatback version of China, you know, lots of infrastructure, the state leading it, and then um, special economic zones. And let me zoom in, in for a moment on that state leading it. Why it's so important we should be careful what we learn from China is that the Chinese state is hugely exceptional. And it's in right. two ways. One of is history. And the history is basically it's 2000 years of a centralized state, 2000 years of meritocratic appointments of civil servants, 2000 years of centralized taxation. You, know, you don't have to have the most places of the world. That actually allows, and if you know, if I'm in 79 sitting there, how shall I try to deliver it? And it needs to be still consistent with my ideology. Okay, Lenin made that choice in, in, in uh, 1917 in Russia, but it didn't have that history. And of course it went wrong. It doesn't have that strong setup to start with. But in 79, when Deng Xiaoping starts doing it, well, like I say, I can actually probably do it with the state-run model, and I can do it consistent with my ideology because actually I have that strong history. But on top of that, so you have history in your favor that no other country really has, um, and you have secondly a real mechanism for this internal accountability in the state. Meritocracy with huge internal accountability means, my God, are you sweating as a civil servant? And that's not how the state functions, say, in India or in Bangladesh or, uh, or in most African countries where the state is built up around patronage, a lot of clientelism. You get a job because you know someone, you get some space. There is no accountability in that sense. So you can't do it in the Chinese way because you do not have the vehicle, the instrument to do it. And that's why I would say, maybe with the exception of a couple of East Asian countries, there's no place in the world that has that history to do it in that Chinese way. So please don't learn the wrong lessons. Learn the deep commitment, but then find a way of doing it in your country in a way that fits your, your, your capabilities of your state. Be self-aware of the state that you have and how much you can do. And again, Bangladesh was smart. You know, the most important decisions were things like denationalizing some of the industries that had been nationalized in the 70s or before the independence, do certain things here and there, um, you know, liberalize where you could have sensible macroeconomic policy, but don't take on too many things. And Stefan, do you um, do you want to reflect a bit more about the countries that have disappointed you? <laughs> yes, yes, that list potentially can be long, but I want to first start saying is that you know it's still remarkable that so many countries are not disappointing me. You know, I, I don't want to put the bar as in terms of performance that they need to be looking like Korea or Singapore, but actually, you know, quite a lot do. But countries that disappoint me, well, you know, the place that disappoints me most is actually Nigeria. Okay, Nigeria is, and it's really disappointing because, you know, when you have natural resources uh, to the extent that they have, but then actually over many decades now, just not done what you should do with natural resources, which use it as something to invest in, not distribute amongst some powerful people, but actually use it to build up your, your economy, your infrastructure, you know, you have your resource. So it disappoints me. Of course, I understand it at the same time, because why would that elite that has access to these oil rents really want to 
move away from the status quo? You know, why would it? And that's that's another part of it, of course, is that we see the incentives are much less in some of these natural resource rich economies. And, and Nigeria, unfortunately, doesn't have really massive amounts to make everybody rich. If it distributed evenly, it would get about 200 to $400 per year to every person in, in Nigeria. That's not richness. But of course, as total sums, it's quite substantial. But of course, they divide it about amongst 100,000 people. So that means, you know, you know, what is it? 400 to $800,000 per, per, per person of these 100,000 is then the equivalent number, given that the population is about 200 million. If you then divide it only amongst 100,000, you get this. So it disappoints me because, you know, they could do sensible things. And I write about a country in the sense that they, you know, that they, you know, they, people in power are just managing that status quo, whatever they, they do. And on top of them, then do some ridiculous economic policy at times and, and so on. So Nigeria definitely does. But actually also countries, you know, like Malawi, it disappoints me because it's, it should do better than, than it does. You know, it's a stable country. It's peaceful, it doesn't have natural resources to, of course, to quickly build up the country, but also doesn't have natural resources to screw it up too much. You know, there's not there's right. kleptocrats, doesn't have that much to steal. And it's not a kleptocratic country, but somehow or another, you know, they have actually democracy as well and it works reasonably well. But somehow or another, there is just so little attempt to actually try something. So it's all about, moving the deck chairs all the time and the Titanic is sinking very slowly or it's at least just a float but not really going anywhere and so so that's the, that are the kind of places actually disappoints me almost more because there's nothing against you doing a bit better and again Malawi will not be Singapore Malawi's landlocked doesn't have much endowments we could do better could do you know right. the economy can, can grow so there are these places that that disappoint and it's it's 